Now, the plan was that we were going to launch into a new series on the doctrines of grace. And then the last two weeks of my life happened to me. And I found myself on uh, Friday night getting ready to start this conference that I knew was going to claim the rest of my weekend and saying, I'm not ready to start this new series. And I don't have time to get ready to start this new series. So we're not starting that new series this morning. Instead, I'm preaching the message I preached on Friday night. Uh, and, And so... Providentially, I trust that that is is the Lord's good plan for us. Uh, And I hope that it is an encouragement to you. Uh, And so, if you will, open your Bibles with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 1. That's what we're going to launch out of this morning. And having been a conference sermon, of course, you know that our, our, our steady diet here is verse by verse exposition of scriptures. As we work our way through books Verse by verse, this morning will be a departure from that. We are not going to just work our way systematically through a passage. Trust that it will be edifying and encouraging to you. My topic assigned to me for the conference was that of victory. Victory in Jesus. Uh, And and I think it's a pretty encouraging topic, frankly. Uh, I don't think that's just the five-hour energy talking. I think it is encouraging. And so that's what we're going to be spending our time looking at this morning. If you've got your Bibles open, let's stand together in honor of the word of the Lord as you are able. We're going to read the whole chapter, though. All of Hebrews chapter one. Hear now the word of the Lord. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same. And your ears will will have no end. To To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your living word. We thank you for this good and pure and perfect gift that you have given to us, your church. We thank you that through your word, we come to know our God. We hear the voice of our God that by your spirit working through your word, we are transformed, even brought from death to life and from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Pray, God, that you would accomplish all of your good purposes through your word by your spirit among us this morning. 
I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, the author of of the book of Hebrews goes to great lengths to show us just how much greater the son is than anyone else. And to really highlight that, he points to the angels. He, he, He points to the supernatural hosts to show how much greater the son is than than even them. They who are far superior to all who are here on earth, all earthly powers. And he stretches this all the way back to eternity past. In verse 3, he says, He's the radiance of the glory of God, Christ is. The exact imprint of his nature. In verse 2, it's through the Son that God created the world. In verse 10, he, in verse 10, he says that the Son laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. That the heavens are the work of his hands. He stretches it all the way to eternity future. When he says in verse 8, of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Verse 10, You, O Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. Eternity past. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same. Your years will have no end, eternity, future. And then in the present, he is at work, verse 3. He upholds the universe by the word of his power from his throne at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 13 says that it's from this throne that his enemies, Christ's enemies, are being made a footstool for his feet. And so this is the story of all eternity. This is the story of all of human history that... The Lord Jesus Christ has been exalted. The Lord Jesus Christ is now being exalted. And the Lord Jesus Christ will forever be exalted in all of eternity. And this has been the Father's good intention since before the foundation of the world. The intention that his son would be exalted. That his son would be victorious. That he would not lose. That he would not falter. That he would not waver. That he would not be conquered. But that every knee would bow, that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even that everything that has breath would praise him. So as we look at this eternal plan, this eternal working of God the Father Almighty through in the Son and through the Son, here's what we need to know as we live our lives. And that is this, the Son wins. The Son is and the Son will be victorious. And that means all of his enemies As we just read in the book of Hebrews, which is really quoting Psalm 110, that all of his enemies will be conquered, that they'll be made a footstool for his feet. And, you know, all Christians agree about that. There there aren't true Christians who disagree and go, "Ah, I don't think so. But many Christians do not live accordingly. Many Christians do not live as if that's reality. Many are convinced that the son's really not doing any winning right now. That we really shouldn't expect him to do any winning in human history. Until, his, until the very end. It's going to be lose, 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 lose. Things get worse and worse and worse and worse. And then right at the end when he comes, he'll fix everything. But Hebrews 1 doesn't let us think like that. In, in fact, the whole scope of scripture doesn't let us think like that. And that's why in Hebrews chapter 1, the author repeatedly refers to the Psalms. Now, 
Most people agree the book of Hebrews is a sermon that's being preached. And many commentators believe that it's actually Psalm 110 that is the sermon text for this sermon that is being preached. The, the, the book of Hebrews is drawing from Psalm 110, and especially in this theme. Regarding the one who would redeem all the nations. Regarding this one who would crush his enemies. This one who would conquer the world. And again, all Christians believe that. All Christians agree with that. But the question is when? When is he going to do this? When is he doing this? When does this begin? When will this victory come? Is this something that is only going to happen totally on the final day? But until then... It's not Jesus who's reigning and his enemies are being put under his feet. For all practical purposes, it's Satan who's reigning and his enemies are being put under his feet. That the kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and his anointed. They cast off his bonds and God just has to let them do it. Because for right now, his kingdom is just a spiritual one. And it really doesn't have much to say about the goings on down here. Well, brothers and sisters, God forbid that we'd ever think that way. As many do. What does Hebrews 1 show us about the Lord Jesus Christ? Where is he? He is seated on his glorious throne. He is king right now. He's not waiting to ascend Zion's hill. He has ascended it. He's not waiting to begin his conquering. He's been doing it ever since he took the throne. And so that's why verse 13 here in Hebrews chapter 1, quoting Psalm 110 says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Peter in Acts chapter 2, in his first, his first big sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter tells us when these words were spoken. This is an actual conversation that God gives us a glimpse into between God the Father Almighty and God the Son And Peter tells us when it happened. It is after the resurrection of Jesus, when Christ ascended to the Father, it's these words that the Father spoke to the Son. And so Jesus is right now seated on his throne. His enemies are right now being made his footstool. It has been happening. It is happening. It will happen. And it will continue to happen until it is finished, until it is done, until the last enemy is subjected under his feet. When will that be? I've got a date for you. I don't. That's not true. (laughs) I almost got fired just for a joke. No man knows the day or the hour. We do know who the final enemy is, though. We don't know who the final enemy to be subjected under the the feet of the glorious almighty son of God. The apostle Paul tells us who that enemy is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The last enemy to be defeated is who? Death. The last enemy to be defeated is death. And until that day, until that last enemy is subjected under the feet of Christ, we should expect to see continual progress. In Christ's march of conquer, in his progress in human history, and that includes our own generation. Why? Why should we expect to see that? Because the Son is seated at the right hand of God. Because the Son has already accomplished everything that he needed to accomplish. And here's what that means. If the Lord Jesus has accomplished all that he needed to accomplish and is now seated, if it is finished... 
And God the Father Almighty, according to his promise to the Son, his promise in Psalm 110, his promise in Psalm 2, which the author of Hebrews also cites in this chapter that we just read. According to those promises to the Son, that promise to the Son, then God the Father must be doing what he said he would do. If Christ has done what he needed to do, the Father must be doing what he promised he would do. And that is actively subjecting his enemies under the feet of his Son. Under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ as he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, enthroned in glory. And so all around the globe right now, that's what's happening. That's what he's doing. As the gospel goes forth, that's what he's doing. As the word is faithfully proclaimed, that's what he's doing. As the people are being baptized and discipled, that's what he's doing. As children are being raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, Christ's victory is being carried out one heart at a time. And here's what this means for us. Christians are not given the option to be pessimists. We're not given the option to be spiritual Eeyores who walk around with our head hanging down saying, oh, I guess, I guess it's all falling apart. As if somehow Christ is not on his throne. As if somehow it's Satan who's winning and Christ is merely passive. As if God's plan for the nations can be or is being thwarted. As if this world that God has made is a lost cause. No, the Father says to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This subjection is still happening. This victory will progress until it is completed. And when it is completed, Christ will stand on that footstool and he will return. We, will, we his people, will meet him in the air. What a day. Until that time, he's reigning. He's reigning from his throne. He's not passive. When he returns, he'll receive his inheritance. The father has said to the son in Psalm 2, ask of me and I'll give you the nations, your inheritance. We're supposed to read that and say, and the son asked and the father gave. Ask of me, I'll give you, I'll make the nations your heritage to the ends of the earth, your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is a gospel of winning and not losing. It's good news. It's not bad news. The the conquering Christ is already victorious. That's why he's seated. On the throne. The enemies of God are being subjected to him. They have been subjected to him, and they will one day be fully subjected to him. And we have a tendency to have a very narrow view of all of this. And we we look at the world around us and we click our TVs on and we see what the news is telling us is going on in the world. And we see the pride marches and we see the, the nonsense that's going on all around the world, and we go. It doesn't look like this victory is marching on, but just consider how much victory has been won. We all brushed our teeth this morning using indoor plumbing. That's a big step forward. You can thank Jesus for that. We've got the longest life expectancies since the days of Noah. We have the ab- more ability to share the gospel than anyone's ever had in history. 
We can travel the whole globe in hours. Brother Brent shared with us this morning. He went to Chicago and then Milwaukee. Is that where you? Yeah, just like in a day. Just left in the morning and came home later. Proclaimed the gospel. God spared the life of a baby. When in history could you do something like that? We have access to the greatest preachers that ever lived. We got access to all the great dead ones from church history through their writing. We've got access to all the best preachers in the entire world who are alive right now. Now, the ones that get promoted are usually the worst, but we have access to the best if we want it. What a time to be alive. And so even though all of this is true, even though Psalm 1, and and, and this happens, where does this happen? It's not everywhere in the world. It's in Nations that the gospel has gone and taken root. Even though Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament, many are still convinced this ship is sinking. This whole world is going to hell in a handbasket. It's just going from bad to worse. The enemies of God are winning. Friends, I would just challenge us with this. What enemies do we think are so powerful that the Almighty God, who's Lord over all, is not currently doing what he promised he would do? He's not subjecting his enemies under Christ's feet. Who do we think was preventing him from doing what he promised he would do in our pessimism? Is it the people with technicolor hair who are raging in the streets that men can really be women? That are screaming in anger, my body, my choice. Is that who we think think is defeating the Lord and his church? Is it those, those angry keyboard warrior atheists in their basements taking out the frustration of their unfulfilled lives on any unsuspecting victim who might challenge their own self godness? Is that who's holding back the spread of Christ's dominion? Maybe it's just these inept career politicians, a lot of them who are senile and can't put five minutes together of coherent speech. Maybe maybe those are the ones robbing Christ of his crown rights. Who do we think is keeping God from fulfilling his promises? Brothers and sisters, here's what's true. The Lord Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. That's the reality. He's ascended to the right hand of glory. He didn't do it yesterday. It's been over 2,000 years and he has been reigning ever since. So Christian, here's what that means. You have been brought into a long established kingdom. And it is not a lost cause that you have been brought into. You have received an inheritance that cannot be shaken. One that actually goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In fact, it goes farther back than the Garden of Eden, all the way into eternity past, where you were chosen, we are told, in Christ before the foundation of the world. You have been made the sons and the daughters of the king, the king who is omnipotent. You have been made citizens of a kingdom, a kingdom that's unstoppable. You've been commissioned You've been given direct orders from your king. And you have been promised in those orders victory. You can't fail. There's no other orders you could receive that come with that guarantee. Your your spouse could order you gently and lovingly. Go to the grocery store for me. 
pick up some onions, but they can't guarantee you won't fail. There might not be any onions. You might get run over by a train. You've been commissioned by this king who guarantees your victory. You cannot fail. Winston Churchill once famously said, there is nothing more exhilarating in this life than to be shot at with no effect. We look at the world around us and it feels like we're being shot at from all sides. But Christian, here's the position you're in. Shot at with no effect. These bullets are not going to take you down. They're not going to kill you. Christ's victory is our victory. We cannot lose. That's why even if, if, if they kill us, we don't lose. We win. Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, two reformers burned at the stake as, as, they, as they stood at the stake, tied to the stake, surrounded by their enemies as the fires were being lit under their feet. And Ridley's fear became apparent in that moment. And Hugh Latimer said these words to him. It's a paraphrase because I don't have it written down. Play the man, Master Ridley. For today we light such a candle as can never be extinguished. They were seconds from a torturous death. And here's the truth that they reminded one another of. This is not a lost cause. They might kill us. They might burn us today. And they did. But God's kingdom marches forth in power. There's nothing more exhilarating in this life than to be shot at with no effect. Christian, that's us. That's the position that we're in. Christ's victory is our victory. And we cannot lose. Because he cannot lose. The gospel of Jesus is one of victory. Is not one of defeat. So Christian, does your life, do your works, does your thinking line up with one who believes that Jesus Christ is the Lord of Lords? That he has been reigning in power, seated on his throne for thousands of years. And that he will be forever reigning in glory and that we will surely reign with him. Or do you act like he's far off? Of course the Lord Jesus is seated on a throne in some far off kingdom that has very little to do with the affairs of our lives here. No, throughout all of history, God has been firmly in control. Totally in control. What rebellious man has meant for evil, God meant for good. What Satan and his legions meant for destruction to oppose God's plan have actually only served God's plan. God's plan which cannot be thwarted. God's plan from all of eternity to exalt the Son. To save a people for himself. Every attempt by devil or by man to thwart that plan of God has only resulted in greater exaltation for the Son. God has proven victorious in every single event of history. How do we know that? Well, we know that because Scripture has told us so. Scripture has told us that God planned all of it. But God ordained and determined all of it, even the greatest act of rebellion, even the greatest evil that has ever taken place among mankind, the rejection and crucifixion of the Lord of glory himself. What do we know about that? Who planned it? God planned it. 
Was it a victory or a defeat? It was a decided victory. It accomplished the salvation of all who would trust in him. It was a subjection of God's enemies, we are told in Scripture, to open shame, triumphing over them in the cross of Christ. And friends, if he was doing it in the moment of the greatest rebellion and evil that has ever existed, he is doing it in every moment. Acts chapter 2, that great sermon, Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost. He says this, Acts chapter 2, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. And then he says in verse 40. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. There were added that day about 3,000 souls. Well, there's Psalm 110 again. In Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost, and in one sermon from a guy who'd never preached before and hadn't been so faithful not long ago, 3,000 people instantly brought into the kingdom of God. And what does he preach? Jesus is both Lord, he is both the reigning king, the sovereign over all, and Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one, the one who has come not to destroy the nations, but to save the nations, to bless the nations. Brothers and sisters, there's no room for disbelief here. There's no room for faithless inaction here. Peter says this, save yourself from this crooked generation. And there has never been a more crooked generation than the one that crucified the second person of the triune Godhead. We tend to look at our world and we say it's the worst it's ever been. There has never been that amount of evil. You tempted to think that way too, like I am? Our generation is not worse than the one that murdered Jesus and rejected him. On the day of his crucifixion, the world hated him. There was the tiniest handful of people who would even acknowledge that they knew him. Let alone that they love him. Even more that they worship him. What would happen though were he to come again in the flesh right now? Millions upon millions upon millions of people living right now in this moment, genuine believers would love him and worship him and serve him and follow him. More people right now than at any point in human history. That's the reality. This redemption of the nations is in full swing. So is God winning down here or is God losing down here? Is God fulfilling his promises or is God not fulfilling his promises? Has all authority been given to the Lord Jesus Christ or has all authority not been given to the Lord Jesus Christ? Will disciples be made of all nations? Will they be baptized? Will they be taught to obey all that Christ has commanded? 
Did Jesus Christ really receive the promised inheritance of the nations or not? Well, the answer is, of course he did. Now, all we have to do to look around and we see that full-scale rebellion against God is still prevalent in our world, is it not? And as much in our nation and culture as anywhere in the whole world. The enemies of God are not fully subjected. In fact, they're not even close to being fully subjected. But we make a mistake when we judge God's activity in all of human history by what we see around us in the United States. Despite what we Americans are convinced of and have reinforced for us every day, we are not the center of the universe. All that God's doing is, is it's actually bigger than what's just going on here. When our understanding of, of what God must be doing in all of history and where this is all heading and how it's all going to work out is more informed for us by Fox News and CNN than it is by Scripture, we are thinking about it wrongly. The reality is the kingdom of God is advancing. The enemies of God are far more subjected to him than they had been at any point in history. God's enemies rage. Foolish people's plot in vain, as Psalm 2 tells us, but their raging and plotting accomplishes exactly nothing. Their kingdom is not advancing. God's kingdom is advancing. Their kingdom is not an eternally living kingdom. It is dying. And so, yes, they're raging. They're raging. But it's the throes of death. Christ conquered the raging of rebels by his life and death and resurrection, saving his own, causing them not to be his enemies anymore. And at the same time, here's how Christ conquers the nations. He either conquers them as they bow the knee to him and worship him, or he conquers them in the solidifying of their destruction as they reject him. But that is accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel's advancing in victory. Christ is winning the nation. So how could we be hopeless? That would be blindness. It would be blindness for us to be without hope. What we should be is emboldened by this. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. The Lord Jesus says this. I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. People often misunderstand this. They, they, they hear these words and they picture the church in a defensive posture with Satan and his hordes attacking them. We hear these words. The gates of hell will not prevail against them. And it sounds to us like hell's on the attack. And we need to hunker down behind the walls in order to be safe. It's not what Jesus is saying. What won't prevail? The gates of hell. Do gates move or do gates not move? The, the walls around a city, a fortified city, do they move or do they not move? When the army marches out to war, do they pick up those massive stone structures that surround the city and march them on? No, of course not. Walls are defensive structures. It's not an army for, uh, uh, of, of Satan and his minions unleashed from hell. It's the gates of hell themselves. 
This is the picture Jesus is painting. It's not, it's not hell on the attack and God's people trying to hold them off as best we can. No, it is Jesus and his church who are on the attack and his enemies cannot hold him off. Their walls are not strong enough. Jesus Christ is on the march. He is tracking down his enemies until they can no longer escape him. And they will either bow the knee in worship and be made his friends. Or they will not escape his wrath. But either way, Jesus wins. Jesus Christ is the king who's reigning now. He will reign forever. His gospel will triumph in all the earth. The Lord has not lost. He is not losing. God the Father Almighty is currently subjecting his enemies under the feet of his son. And if it doesn't seem like that to us, it is likely that we are viewing the whole story of history wrongly. The Lord has not failed to answer the prayer he taught us to pray. How did he teach us to pray? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. There hasn't been 2,000 years of God's people praying this prayer that he himself taught them to pray and commanded them to pray. And that prayer falls on deaf ears because I'm just not doing that. That's not how my kingdom works in this world. There hasn't been 2,000 years of the church carrying out a great commission, again, at the command of Christ that is destined to fail in human history. That is not what God is doing. It is not what God has done. God's kingdom is here. God's kingdom is expanding every day. And you have an opportunity to help in building it. And I have an opportunity in helping building it. We together have an opportunity in helping to build it. Christ's kingdom is advancing in the earth And Christian, you've got an opportunity to play your role. In fact, you're commanded to play your role. What's your role? Your role in Christ's enemies being subjected under his feet. How amazing is that? You have the opportunity to see his elect repent and believe. Through your proclamation of the conquering Christ who is already victorious. Through your proclamation of the gospel of his kingdom. Through your proclamation that Christ has triumphed in his sinless life and in his cross and in his resurrection. That that all authority is his. In in the settled knowledge that it's he, this, this Lord who has commissioned us. In your knowledge that the devil himself has been bound by the Lord. That his house is being plundered even right now. And that the church is the hands and feet of Jesus. We, we love that imagery. That biblical imagery. The church is the hands and feet. The body of Christ. That it's the church who is the means by which our defeated foe is being subjected under Christ's rule. And authority. It's Christ who tells us all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. In other words, you can't lose. The war is already won. Your enemy is helplessly defeated. Now go fight. That's our commission from Christ. Doug Wilson says in the military, that's called a mop up operation. 
After a battle, after a campaign, you're, you're just rooting out enemy forces and installations. And you know what? Some of the good guys die in that. They're still fighting, and the fighting can be fierce, but it's fighting against an enemy who is defeated. It's fighting from a place of victory. It's fighting knowing that your cause cannot fail. It's already won. The war's won. That's Jesus' commission to us. The war is won. Now go. Preach. Go. Baptize the nations. Go. Instruct them to obey everything that I've commanded. Brothers and sisters, if that's true, let us advance with courage. Jesus Christ is indeed already overcome the world, and we are called to be on the offense, not hunkering down in defense, shuddering in fear of a world that hates us. What does that look like in practical terms? Well, in Acts chapter 2, we get a picture of the early church. And this, this picture that Acts 2 gives us is not that the church always looked that way. You know, when you pose for family photos, how difficult it is to get all your kids not to look like absolute goobers in the picture. And you've got to take 40 of them to get that two good ones. Your family doesn't always look like that, but it's a picture of what your family's capable of looking like in its best moments. In Acts 2, we get this picture of the church in strength. We get this picture of the church in health. It's meant to show us what it was like. It's meant to show us what we could be like. It's meant to show us what we should be like. And we read this in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 of the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. How did the Christian church advance? As we see this picture of the church in health and strength in Acts chapter 2. Through devotion to the apostles' teaching, through the fellowship, through the breaking of bread, and through the prayers. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that God in his wisdom would have made it so that this is how the enemies of Christ would be subjected under his feet? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the, to the whole of God's word, through the apostolic teaching, the post-resurrection apostolic teaching. The church shared together what they had in common. They distributed to those in need in the church. There was true community. There was deep care for one another. In our day, what does that look like? It doesn't look like us living in a commune together. We're not about to start one. Co-ops, as good as it gets. It's making sure, though, that Christian education is available for our kids instead of sending them to government indoctrination centers, which we call the public schools. And while we say that, we thank God for godly teachers in the public schools, don't we? We love them. We need missionaries into the public schools, adult missionaries into the public schools. 
We do it by working together with our talents and our resources to dismantle the enemy's remaining strongholds, to root them out, expose them, and dismantle them. What does that look like? It looks like the work in eradicating abortion, as Brent shared today. At Whole Women's Health, Brent, what stands in the spot where you stood so many times preaching? Shout it out. A for sale sign. The advance of Christ's kingdom. We do it by, by stripping bare and exposing the rampant perversion that is infiltrating our communities. It's our work together to call civil authorities to righteousness. It's our refusing to close our churches the next time the government tells us we have to. It says day by day, they're breaking bread in their homes. Here's what that means. Somebody's got to make the bread. Somebody's got to make the food. This, the, the subjection of Christ's enemies under his feet is a whole family project. There were homemakers practicing hospitality and through it, the gospel was advanced. They were in the temple because the temple still existed day by day. We understand through the apostles' teaching that we are the temple. And so we gather. We don't forsake the assembly as some do. What do we do? We, we receive God's good gifts with gratitude and glad and generous hearts. We sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We love our spouses and we raise our children and grandchildren in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We sharpen them like arrows for the war that they're in. We pray and we work and we feast and we marry and we have children. We hope with joyful and courageous hearts, confident in the faithfulness and the triumph of our sovereign God. It is the Christian community, it is the church, made up of Christian households. It is through our consistent day in and day out faithful plotting as we put one foot in front of the other. And the often unglamorous kingdom work of daily life as each part of the household of faith plays their specific role. It is through these things that the church is an instrument in God's hands in bringing his enemies in subjection under Christ's feet as his kingdom advances in victory. Faithfulness to what God has called you to. It's a whole family project together. The Apostle Paul, who was, who was persecuted more than anyone in this room, more than all of us put together, more than all American Christians combined. He lived in a day where Christians were being persecuted, slaughtered for their faith, and yet Paul is relentlessly optimistic in his preaching. How can that be? How can it be that this man who suffered so much was so optimistic? Well, it's because of this. It's because he knew how the story would unfold. It's because he knew who was in control. It's because he knew that Christ was and is and would be victorious. It's because he knew that God had a people for himself and that he would save them. That his labors in the Lord were not in vain. He knew that God's enemies would be crushed under his feet. And he knew that, 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 that God had promised victory to Christ's church. 
I'm just going to close with the words of the Apostle Paul. Some well-known words from Romans chapter 8. Starting in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There it is. Nothing natural, nothing supernatural can separate you, Christian, from the love of God in Christ Jesus, who is reigning in glory and in his reign, as his enemies are being subjected under his feet, he is interceding specifically and personally for you. I mean, that's as good as it gets. Here's how Paul closes this letter to these Roman Christians, to our brothers and sisters. Romans chapter 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. He says in verse 25, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings has been made, to, made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your might. Thank you for your victory through the life and death and resurrection of your son. Thank you for your promises to your church. Thank you, Lord, for your justice. And thank you, Lord, for your grace. Lord, thank you that we who sit here this morning have been conquered by you in love and in kindness and in mercy, such that you have opened our eyes to behold your majesty to behold your glory, to behold your goodness. You have caused we who were your enemies to love you. You have given us by your spirit eyes to see you. So that our whole heart's desire was to worship you. And Lord, we pray for those around us in this world. We pray for our friends and our family members and those in our community. We pray for, for governing rulers, even in high places that you would conquer them in that way. That you would conquer them by opening their eyes to behold your glory and that you would save them as you have saved us. But Lord, in all of this, you are worthy of glory. You are worthy of glory in your justice. And you are worthy of glory in your mercy. 
So we entrust ourselves to you and we glory in you in all of it. Because you are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our trust in that. I do pray, Lord, for any who hear my voice that remain your enemy right now, though they may believe that they are your friend. I pray in your kindness to them by your spirit, you would open their eyes right now in this moment. Even as I trust you've been convicting them, even even as we've talked today of their need for you, I pray, God, that you would bring them all the way home. Grant to them the gifts of repentance and faith. Cause them to run to the cross of Christ, this risen and ruling Savior. I pray for we, your church, we who you have commissioned. We have, you, you have told that you have all authority on heaven and on earth. We whom you have sent out in your name. Pray, God, that you would make us faithful. We pray, Lord, that, that we would get in the fight. That, 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 Lord, we would not cower. That we would not retreat. We would not hunker down. Lord, we would be faithful in those areas that you have called us. We would not shy away, Lord, from from seeking those areas out, knowing that you have a call for each one of us. Pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in this, that your light would shine in the darkness through us, that your name would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.